Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, and welcome to our second season of the Essential Antitrust Podcast. Now, the new year is always a time to look forward to a fresh start and plan for the year to come. 2020 certainly turned out in ways that none of us expected, but we are nevertheless going to have another go at looking ahead uh, and focus on the trends and developments in antitrust that we think will shape business and markets throughout 2021. We examine these in more detail in our 11th annual 10 Key Themes publication, which was launched on January 13th. Now, for anyone who isn't familiar, 10 Key Themes is an annual publication where we analyze the issues and developments that we think will shape antitrust enforcement throughout the coming year. In 10 Key Themes, we don't just look at the world through an antitrust and competition lens. On the contrary, we draw insights from our colleagues from around the world who specialize in a variety of areas from transactions, to litigation, to regulatory and IP, to give you a holistic view of what the enforcement landscape will look like. So I'm happy to have here with me today to talk us through the trends we expect to see in the coming years. First, Thomas Janssens, who's the head of our Global Antitrust Competition and Trade Practice Group and an expert advisor in EU and international antitrust law. Welcome back, Thomas. Hi, Jen. Happy New Year. And we also have Sarah Jensen with us, who's a counsel in our antitrust group based in London. Welcome back, Sarah. Thanks, Jen. Good to be here. So, Thomas, Sarah, now, you know, the publication is called 10 Key Themes, but, you know, we won't have time to go through all 10 in detail today. So maybe I could start by asking you both if there are any of the trends that really stand out for you for the coming year. I would say, Jen, antitrust now is really everywhere. You literally can't open a newspaper without reading about uh, antitrust and not just sort of the business newspaper, uh, but also the, the general press. So... Antitrust really is front and center in many of today's biggest issues that affect our daily lives. I would also say that as part of the recovery post-pandemic, which we hope and expect to see in 2021, antitrust will play an important role. So there are many themes I could pick on, but if I would choose two, I would flag, first of all, the likelihood that we would see more enforcement. There is pressure building for antitrust to do more, do more on the the role of technology in our daily lives, do more in relation to the environment and sustainability, really play its part in a way advancing a, a vast range of policy goals in our society. A second theme I would see is one of more resilience. The pandemic has led to the reassessment of business models of supply chains, and in many cases, bringing them closer to home. And that raises antitrust issues as well, especially where reshaping includes working with competitors or rethinking contractual relations. Also, this will be fueling growth and may involve a tightening of foreign investment regimes. And a third theme, I think, that will be central to managing antitrust risk this year is the impact of the major political changes we saw in 2020 including obviously Brexit, with the UK's competition regime now fully detached from the EU and the EU and UK having just reached the terms of their trade and cooperation agreement, we'll be keen to understand where UK enforcement policies may diverge with those of the EU and also the approach that the CMA may take to the 50 or so extra mergers they're expecting this year, particularly given their recent approach to the number of international deals that were cleared elsewhere but actually faltered in the UK. The CMA's latest statistics here are actually very interesting. 
In the last nine months, out of 33 decisions, nine deals were referred to an in-depth phase two review. That's almost 30%. And during the same period, only one phase two case was cleared unconditionally. Compare that back to 2014, when the current regime came into force. Out of 82 decisions, only six were referred to phase two. That's just 7%, four of which were cleared unconditionally. I think this interventionist approach post-Brexit is one to watch very closely. And the second obvious big change politically has been the election of Joe Biden and the changes his administration might bring to antitrust enforcement in the US, but also the impact of that internationally. Jen, I know it's very early days, but I'm not sure what we can say at this point. Yeah, indeed, Sarah. I mean, the the transition to the Biden presidency is something that international business and, and people are over are watching closely, obviously, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, I think at this point, there's at least some reason to hope that the Biden presidency will at least bring back a more stable political environment in the U.S. and a return to probably a higher level of cooperation among the U.S. antitrust authorities and other authorities than we've seen in the last four years. But, you know, as you've said, that stability seems like it's likely to come with an uptick in enforcement. And it's maybe worth noting in that regard that as of early January, we know that the Democrats will also regain control of the U.S. Senate, which creates an opportunity for antitrust reform through legislation in the U.S., which is something that we probably wouldn't have seen under a split Democratic House and Republican Senate. Now, you know, you both mentioned that, that we can expect ramped up enforcement in 2021. What jurisdictions or or agencies do you expect that to come from? Well, Jen, essentially, this is coming from growing pressure on governments. They're under pressure to deliver beneficial outcomes to consumers, to intervene more, to correct uh, perceived market failures, and also to uh, reverse perceived growing inequalities in society generally. And so there's pressure for antitrust to play its part in, in all of this. So this is already happening in a variety of cases. Some agencies actually are getting more resources to enforce. Sarah already uh, referred to the UK following Brexit. Likewise, in the US, as you mentioned, Jen, uh, there might be reform to uh, give uh, antitrust authorities in a way more power and more scope to intervene. There's talk about changes to antitrust laws and also adopting new tools to address these perceived market failures. For example, sector-specific regulation, market investigation tools. Uh, We see the proposed Digital Markets Act in the EU, which in a way is intended to supplement competition enforcement in digital markets and to introduce regulatory regime for large online platforms, which are perceived to act as, as gatekeepers. Also, I would say there's greater emphasis on the importance of companies behaving fairly and focusing their resources on anti-competitive conduct that uh, harms individual citizens, especially the more vulnerable ones. For example, price increases in pharma uh, have come under the spotlight and most likely will continue to do so. And then finally, I would say authorities are also considering whether and uh, how they can fold these broader policy goals into their competition analysis. So that's how the regulators see it. It's, of course, important also to see the different sides of these debates, which are complex. And I would say with all of these pressures, there's always a certain risk of over-enforcement and over-regulation. So that will be interesting to look out for during 2021. 
Thanks, Thomas. And I want to pick apart maybe the last point you made about how authorities are thinking about whether broader societal goals can be folded into a competition analysis. And Sarah, can you maybe give us a little bit more color on this? Are we talking about the environmental and sustainability issues that have become so prominent in recent years, or is there something else at play here? Yeah, well, I think environmental and sustainability concerns are a really great example of this trend because, you know, as we say, as we do hopefully start to emerge from the pandemic, we're really seeing heightened awareness in many boardrooms of these environmental and sustainability issues and the role they should really play in economic recovery. I mean, last year, we saw several leading authorities issue draft guidelines and consultations on the role that they should play in helping businesses achieve these goals, such as providing clearer guidance on when companies may collaborate on sustainability initiatives without running into antitrust problems, and the evidence that the authorities will need to decide whether environmental benefits actually outweigh any downsides from the collaboration, such as higher prices or reduced choice. And I think this year we're likely to see these policies firm up, hopefully with more international consensus too, as bodies such as the OECD and the International Competition Network discuss and develop best practices and also in the run-up to COP26 in November, where more ambitious and concrete climate change goals may well be set. Yeah, I mean, it seems clear, Sarah, there's a lot of, of change and potential for more enforcement on the way. And and I guess we could see some of that enforcement coming out of activities even that, that companies have taken during the pandemic itself, where there's been lots of collaboration to either increase output or overcome production shortfalls or ensure pandemic-related supply chains. But even amidst those very important societal goals, there's obviously no general license in, in favor of, of horizontal cooperation or, shall we say, even collusion, in, even in a pandemic. And we're seeing this in the U.S. where the DOJ is actually prioritizing prosecution of procurement collusion during the pandemic through a new task force called the Procurement Collusion Strike Force. And they're looking specifically at, at the COVID-19 situation as part of that. But Thomas, maybe I can go back to you and to the second theme that you mentioned at the outset. You said that resilience is going to be a key factor this year, both for businesses, but also at a political and policy level. Can you unpack a bit what you mean by that? Absolutely. So for businesses, the pandemic has been a positive for some sectors. Uh, think about tech, but very damaging for others. Think about aviation, hospitality and bricks and mortar retail. It's maybe commonplace to say that, that indeed the pandemic has been accelerating certain trends that we were already seeing. But certainly what we see is, is that all sectors will want to become more resilient to future shocks and many will need to reinvent themselves after the pandemic. For example, they'll have to reassess business models. They'll need to think about reshaping supply chains diversifying their offerings. And this could mean, for example, acquiring or collaborating with a competitor. It can also mean rethinking internally the vertical chains and how contracts with either suppliers or customers uh, are structured. So all of that uh, inviting the potential for uh, antitrust scrutiny. You're right that resilience is just as much a concern also for the policy makers. And what we see, obviously, uh, as areas for potential tension is that 
many governments are less than fully accepting the benefits of free trade these days or of open markets and foreign investment. There's more focus on national resilience and on the autonomy of supply. There's also an accelerating trend for new and tougher mechanisms to control foreign direct investment and policies to protect national uh, interests uh, more generally. And especially in sensitive and strategic sectors, this is the case. And think there about critical national infrastructure or advanced technologies, companies providing essential supplies to governments, emergency services, think about the military, think about dual use uh, sectors. So what we've for example, seen is that in the G20, governments took almost one national security-related investment measure per week in the past year, and that certainly won't go down in 2021. Looking a little bit more closely at different jurisdictions, for example, in the EU, we have now 15 jurisdictions that have a foreign investment regime, eight of which are new or recently have been amended. And three more jurisdictions, three more member states, Ireland, Denmark and and Sweden are actually planning to introduce their foreign investment regime. So that will mean that most of the EU member states very soon will have their foreign investment regime. We also have seen coming into force really recently in, in October 2020, the new EU framework on the screening of foreign direct investments. Uh, And that will lead to collaboration between the EU level and uh, those member states. And then in the UK, we see on the horizon a brand new national security screening regime uh, that we're expecting to come into force later in, in 2021. If we look on the other hand, for example, to China, we've seen foreign investment restrictions have been loosened in recent years. But then at the same time, we've seen the US-China trade war continuing threaten the status quo. That's already led to retaliatory trade measures that could spill over into a merger control regime, for example. Uh, And in China, that already includes Chinese industrial policy and public interest considerations, which do play a role in those merger control investigations. Let me give you a fact, uh, Jen. While global foreign direct investment flows were down almost 50% in the first half of 2020, the second half of the year saw a significant increase in value of deals involving sectors squarely within the scope of these strengthened global FDI regimes. And that to me shows that with the right strategy, investors increasingly recognize that FDI review should not pose an insurmountable barrier to deals being pursued. They'll be under more scrutiny, but deals can be done if they are strategized properly from the outset. So that's interesting, Thomas. And it seems clear that companies have to pay attention to foreign investment and public interest reviews for their deals in a way that that maybe they haven't in the past. But Sarah, of course, they still have to go through the good old competition merger control reviews. Can you tell us a bit about what trends we're seeing on that side in 2021? 
Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, as Thomas mentioned, we are seeing an uptick in M&A activity and uh, we're predicting this to continue through 2021 following an uptick in the second half of last year. But we are also expecting authorities to scrutinise certain deals much more closely and continue to apply more, I could say, novel theories of harm, such as the impact of a deal on innovation or potential entrance or, for example, access to customers via data sets or supply chains. Now, consumers obviously remain very much top of the agenda. Any potential harm resulting from an acquisition or consolidation in a sector, and that's not just necessarily price rises, uh, will be looked at very closely. So we'd advise companies to be prepared for possibly lengthy and probably more intensive reviews in some sectors, as authorities are continuing to demand really large volumes of evidence, particularly internal documents, as they try and assess the likelihood of any of these harms materialising in practice. In Europe last year, we saw the Commission announce a policy that will enable it to review more deals that fall under national merger control thresholds, and this could well impact acquisitions of small targets where their turnover doesn't yet necessarily represent their real value or potential. And in the US, as you said earlier, you know, we're expecting an uptick in enforcement by better funded agencies, again, probably focused on where there's going to be consumer harm. And also, I think another sort of important point to mention is we are seeing more litigation arising on deals. More parties and third parties are appealing agency decisions to block or indeed clear deals. And also companies are trying to enforce contractual commitments that they've agreed, such as obligations to do all they can to get regulatory approvals and close the deal. So as these agency reviews become tougher and the economic fallout from the pandemic continues to play out, we would advise parties to be prepared for the prospect of litigation much earlier in the deal processes and make sure their sort of teams are sort of equipped to deal with that, that eventuality. Sarah, you mentioned digital markets and big tech and competition in the digital economy clearly has been front and center for a while now, but so far it's been through existing enforcement channels and a lot of reports and industry studies coming from competition regulators in particular. Thomas, is there a chance in 2021 that we see even broader reaching change, maybe even through legislation in this sector? Absolutely. I think, first of all, indeed, uh, Jen, as you say, there's been plenty of reports, plenty of discussion. But I do think that we are uh, starting to see also, in a way, moves from, from discussion to action by antitrust enforcers, but also indeed by legislators. As I said before, arguably a bit of an overreaction in some areas, and that will be a debate that will continue to be uh, held. If you look First of all, maybe at transactions, there are plenty of proposals and many of them are controversial in terms of indeed increasing scrutiny. Sarah mentioned the EU's initiative, which is aimed at catching the the so-called killer acquisitions. But for example, also in other parts of the world, we we see in Asia Pacific, for example, in Australia, large digital platforms uh, having to provide the ACCC with advance notice of any acquisitions. We see Japan already having revised its merger guidelines to consider uh, the effect of data of R&D on competition. So also, again, sort of uh, focusing on tech mergers. We see South Korea, where the KFTC plans to introduce a transaction value based uh, notification requirement. 
uh, and that would allow it to catch acquisitions of startups which might not meet current turnover-based notification thresholds. So lots of focus on tech transactions. Again, I would query whether it's really necessary to single out any uh, particular sector or industry, but uh, the reality is that authorities have been under criticism of having missed certain uh, of these transactions in the past, having under-enforced, and the backlash could be maybe one of, of over-enforcement and certainly of pressure for them to, to show that they are not asleep at the steering wheel. Yeah, and, and Thomas, it's maybe worth uh, adding that the U.S. isn't immune from this. And, and in the U.S., we've seen some policy ideas floated that you say maybe veer into the territory of, of overreaching in some cases, but they include things like a, a new structural presumption that would presumptively prohibit transactions that result in market shares above certain levels or potential presumptions against acquisitions of startups by dominant firms. There have even been suggestions of a flat-out prohibition on acquisitions of potential rivals and, and nascent competitors. So, you know, a lot of, of thinking in the U.S. so far, none of it actually translating into, into clear policies or, or new regulations, but certainly the ideas are being floated. Right, yeah, no, absolutely. And then there are, of course, similar proposals in relation to, to the conduct of these companies. I referred already to the proposed EU Digital Markets Act, DMA, which would introduce new obligations for gatekeepers uh, regarding practices that are perceived to limit contestability or are, quote-unquote, unfair. So this would empower the European Commission to impose structural and, and behavioral remedies for non-compliance. What I think we will see is in the meantime also sort of an interplay between competition enforcement and regulation and it remains to be seen sort of how far ultimately the DMA will go and what remains more in the area of pure competition enforcement. But clearly the boundaries are uh, blurring at the moment. Also looking at China, for example, they have draft antitrust guidelines for the platform economy and those address how the conduct of platforms, for example, in relation to use and access to data, may infringe the local anti-monopoly rules as well. So another development to watch closely. So if I could try to sum up what we've heard today, antitrust laws in 2021 are going to be reshaped to support sustainable economic growth following the pandemic. Authorities will increase enforcement, intervene more frequently to protect consumers, and take wider industrial and public policy concerns into consideration. Deals in key sectors such as tech and life sciences will face more scrutiny, and we expect more enforcement in concentrated sectors and for acquisitions of startups or important innovators. Companies across a variety of sectors will face a much more complex foreign investment and public interest review landscape than they have in the past. Well, throughout 2021, we'll be keeping a close eye on these developments, We'll be hosting a number of events exploring the shifting antitrust landscape throughout the year. And of course, we'll be talking about many of these trends on our Essential Antitrust podcast. Do get in touch with me or one of your regular Freshfields contacts if there are particular topics you'd like to hear us cover on the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us and have a great day.